Welcome to Beyond the Bio, a podcast that dives deep into our exceptional leaders at Bain and spotlights the incredible work they're doing. You can look up their bios online, but that only scratches the surface of who they are. We share the stories that show you why our leaders are truly extraordinary on this podcast. Joining me today is Mike Garska, a partner in our London office and the former managing partner of Bain's business in the UK and Ireland. Today, I'll talk with Mike about how moving multiple times impacted the career choices he's made, why Bain's apprenticeship model was a key focus during his time as a managing partner, and how Bain prepares you to lead in social impact. I'd also add that Mike is one of the offices that I spent a good amount of time with during my trips over to the UK in my recruiting role. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Keith. It's great to, to be with you today and, and look forward to our, our discussion. Now, Mike, our longtime listeners know that I always like to start with the background of who the different guests are so that people understand who they're listening to. Let's talk a little bit about your background. I know you moved around a lot and lived in different parts of the country, but I think that shapes who you are as a person. So why don't you share a little bit about that with our listeners? Growing up, the kind of three things that in retrospect seem to have, have really shaped how I think about opportunities and, and how I approach things. One is I grew up in a, in a very stable family with a mother and father that over time both worked. Second, I grew up in a large family. I'm the second of five children. I've got an older brother, a younger brother, and two younger sisters. And third, we moved around quite a bit because my dad was in the Air Force. And I just start on that last point. When I started kindergarten and, and when I finished sixth grade, I think we moved quite a few times. So I was in five different uh, elementary schools during that time period. And Mike, were they all stateside or were you literally crossing borders and getting passport stamps? It was all in the U.S. across Alabama, Los Angeles, and Hawaii. But then a couple moves within those places uh, as well. But again, I, you know, I think an important part of that experience was that as we moved to a new city, we moved to a new house, we moved to a neighborhood, and I moved to a new school, there wasn't a whole lot of time to cry and worry about kind of what we were leaving behind. It was a need to, okay, we're in a new spot, let's make some new friends, let's figure out how the neighborhood works, what are the, the local culture and norms. And now with a bit more education, I think that was the beginning of, of recognizing that to be successful in life, you need curiosity and you need to be a bit of an anthropologist that you're watching, looking and listening, not just immediately sharing your point of view. I've also found, you know, I do a lot of things inside of work and outside of work that get me outside of the bubble a little bit. And I always find that if you take the time to get to know people, you'll probably have something in common with almost everyone. You may not notice it right up front. That's a great point. I think that was an important formative experience in life. And if I think about studying abroad was at university, and then actually the, when we, we talked a little bit later about the different moves internationally within Bain, that experience of moving around when I was young and adapting to new experiences definitely shaped a bit of that worldview and, and recognizing you need to give yourself time to get to know people and not judge them by where they lived or where they came from or the color of the skin or, or what their religion was. You just, you were meeting enough people of different types that you were treating people as people. I had a set of role models as parents that were retraining. There wasn't one thing that they were doing all their lives. And growing up, you know, I had a working mom and, not, you know, my brothers and sisters and I, fortunately, there were five of us. So one could do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But early on, we had to, I say cook dinner, but basically we reheated what, uh, what mom had made on, on the weekend. And that taught us a bit of independence, but also to recognize that we need to take responsibility for ourselves and others. And being in a large family, imagine a, the dinner table with seven folks, two parents and three kids. And that's assuming that we wouldn't have friends or neighbors or the Jesuit priest that was visiting that day. You know, you realize that the world is about more than just you as an individual, that you needed to be successful, but the family needed to be successful. You had a set of resources, whether it was how many pieces of corn or how many rolls there were, 
that you learned, you know, that you, you had to share food, you had to share toys, and basically you, you had to play as part of a team. When you talk about that and how that shapes your worldview, let's talk about you actually getting out into the world. You left home to go to school. What was the plan when you went to school? How did you choose the school? How did you choose your major? What was your initial goal when you, when you left home for college? It was a mix of things at time. I was, I was fortunate growing up in Los Angeles before Proposition 13, LA Unified School District was a great set of the schools that I was in, had a whole set of AP programs. I had a set of, of teachers that were convinced I should go be an engineer or a physicist or a mathematician, and they wanted to go to Caltech or MIT, and we'll talk about it later, but I did end up at MIT, as you did, in a slightly different setting. But, you know, the things that excited me when I was at that age were more around history and what we then call civics and government. And maybe it was the early travel, got me interested in international affairs. I applied to a couple of universities, but decided I really, really wanted to go to the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, which was kind of the, the oldest school of international relations in the U.S., at that point, with five kids, my parents couldn't necessarily, well, definitely couldn't pay for a private university education. That's, that's back then, before the, the cost of education now. Because my dad was in the Air Force, it was a little bit of the family business, so to speak. I applied, and I was, I was fortunate to get a scholarship from the Air Force, an ROTC scholarship. So I committed to serve four years as an officer after graduating in exchange for tuition. And that decision, you know, that opportunity created the opportunity for me to go to Georgetown and you know, it's interesting. I was talking to a couple of people the other day, but Georgetown was almost a more alien experience than anything I had so far in, in my life. So first, you know, as I said, we'd moved around to a, to a couple of schools when I was young. But I, when I went to Georgetown as a white Anglo-Saxon male, I don't normally consider myself a minority. But in retrospect, I think there were three of us from California in my class, the class of 1984 at, at Georgetown. Most of the class were grown up in, and been to prep schools up and down the about up and down the East Coast. They spoke with different accents. They had different socioeconomic backgrounds. I mean, they even wore different clothes, and they had different life experiences and, and different expectations. So again, that was a, a real learning experience. But Georgetown opened my opened my doors across a lot of dimensions. I studied international relations and you know what we then called Soviet studies which pretty much dates that. Again, I studied the Russian language and, and culture. I was fortunate to spend a summer in what was then Leningrad, travel in what was then the, uh, the Soviet Union across Latvia, Lithuania, what's now an independent Ukraine, in addition to Russia. And again, that exposure that, oh, this academic subject of a language actually was, was not something that just sat on paper and it was a new alphabet and new vocabulary and grammar. Actually, this is how a set of people communicated, and there's a rich history and culture behind that kind of, again, expanded that view of the world and, and viewing the approaching new experiences with curiosity and an open mindset. One of the things that I know from just seeing you online and knowing you for several years now is the role that diversity plays in sort of how you approach work, how you approach leadership. One of the things I was actually surprised to learn as we were preparing for this was that your ROTC experience in college sort of got you outside the bubble yet again. Can you talk a little bit about that for people that may not, may not know the background? Good point, Keith. So as I said, I was on a Air Force ROTC scholarship Georgetown actually didn't have an ROTC program for the Air Force. They had one for the Army. And then if you wanted, you were in, in the Reserve Officer Training Corps, ROTC, in Washington, D.C., in the Air Force, the only campus that had that was Howard University, which is one of the historic black colleges and universities, as you, as you well know. So my freshman and sophomore year, once a week on a, if I remember correctly, it was a Wednesday afternoon, I'd get on the G2 bus and, and go from the 98% 
white Northwest Washington, D.C., through DuPont Circle to, frankly, a fundamental socioeconomic divide and a racial divide. And then I'd spend the Wednesday afternoon on campus at Howard. And then in my junior and senior year, it was, it was two afternoons a week. And again, I went from an experience at, at Georgetown, which was north of 90% white, to one when I was at Howard, which was definitely the reverse. And whether that's the experience there or a time when I worked abroad, you move past thinking this is a white person, this is a black person, and you begin to understand and appreciate individuals for individuals. And that was an informative part of my experience then. So, Mike, it sounds like the experience that you had sort of moving yet again and even going to a new school, but getting outside the bubble at that new school, even though you were arguably outside of your own bubble going to Georgetown in the first place, really sounds like a tremendous set of experiences. Let's talk about afterwards. I know that the ROTC program comes with a commitment to stay in the military for a few years afterwards. What was that journey like and why did you ultimately decide to leave the military? Yeah, so I think it, it uh, extraordinarily fortunate at the period of time to serve. As I, we spoke earlier, I studied Russian, studied Soviet area studies when I was commissioned as an officer in, in the Air Force. And then I had the opportunity to work within the intelligence community in the Air Force. So I had some initial training. And then I was stationed in the greater Washington area for about three, four years, and then decided to stay beyond my initial four-year commitment at that point for an additional two years. And from 1988 to 1990, was stationed in what was then West Germany, which, you know, when we step back and think about the history at the time when the wall came down in 89 and the whole world was changing, was an important set of experiences. You were in the military doing intelligence work. I remember those days a little bit. It was sort of peak Cold War, right? You had done Soviet studies and things like that, but that was sort of the height of the tension between two superpowers, right? Right. So Reagan was elected to his first term in the fall of 1980, ramped up military spending and I think overall competition at the time. The Soviets invaded Afghanistan in, in late 1979, and it, it was KAL-007, which was shot down over the Soviet Union while I was at, at university. And that was a period where, where tensions were raised. But also, while I was busy studying Russian at, at Georgetown, I think we went through three general secretaries and I think it was my first year or so in, in the Air Force, Gorbachev came in, and that began to definitely change the dynamic within the Soviet Union and ultimately the relationship between the, the U.S. and the Soviet Union. During that time period, I had another set of formative experiences. Gorbachev and Reagan signed the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty to eliminate American Persian missiles and cruise missiles and Soviet SS-20s and, and short-range missiles. And during the summer of, I think it was 1988 and early fall, I worked as an arms control inspector in what's now an independent Kazakhstan, Soviet Russian, uh, what's now Russian Siberia, visiting Soviet missile bases, counting up missiles, verifying their destruction. And again, in an environment where we were working with Soviet officers that were working in highly restricted areas where they couldn't even tell their family where they lived or worked or what they did. And here you had this young American officer running around their missile site and asking him all types of questions and, and ultimately verifying the destruction of the missiles that were their, uh, their whole reason for serving. I can see how a couple of years of that, the logical thing to do next is to go to business school. <laughs> so, <laughs> how did I... Well, that's a great question, but you know, sometimes... 
So life gave me a set of experiences at that point. You know, I think all the things we just talked about, but, you know, by the time that was the point, you know, I was, I had a reasonable knowledge of the military industrial complex of what was then the Soviet Union. And then the wall came down and the Soviet Union was on the the verge of collapsing. And suddenly a bunch of those skills and capabilities and and embedded knowledge that wasn't the evil empire anymore at at the time. I like to say I had a grand plan to figure out exactly what I was, was going to do next, but there was a girl in my life that I thought might be more important in the future, so I got out of the Air Force and spent some time in Australia trying to convince her to marry me. took a little bit longer than I thought. I came back to the U.S., worked for a couple of years in a small consultancy, and then recognized, you know, as much as I had a set of experiences, I basically didn't know anything about business. I didn't know what strategy was versus marketing, what a balance sheet. I wouldn't even know the terms balance sheet versus, versus P&L. So I decided to, to get some new training and send myself to business school. I was fortunate to get an offer from, uh, from Sloan and then spent the next 18 months at MIT Sloan to get my, uh, well, I don't even think it was an MBA at the time. It was a master's of science in management until they'd formally changed the degree. Fortunately, Bain ultimately decided to give me an offer, but only after they dinged me for a summer offer and after some of our competitors dinged me as well. Mike, I was going to ask about that. You know, why didn't you intern with us for the summer? And it sounds like it wasn't actually your choice. Yeah, well, you know, Keith, you know, I've got a beef to pick with you and our recruiting team. I got dinged for the summer social program in London when I was at, at Sloan. Fortunately, I ended up with an offer at the what was then the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which was obviously leveraging some of my, my previous Soviet experience. But as the recruiting team reminded me, all right, well, Mike, maybe we made the mistake for the summer, but we, we did give you a full-time offer. So right. I was fortunate to, uh, to then get a full-time offer in, in London. In parallel with that, my wife and I had decided to get married. She was working here at London at the time. So then I started in, in Bain, London in, uh, in early 1994. So, Mike, you mentioned that you joined Bain London in 1994, but I also know that you've worked in more offices in London and have globetrotted a little bit. We talked a little bit about your parents and how they retrained themselves several times and how you did one retraining by going back to school. It sounds like you also moved around a lot while you were at Bain. Can you talk a little bit about the early years for you at Bain and, and what your experiences were and, and maybe a little bit of what you wanted to get out of coming to Bain? You know, was this a transient stop? It's obviously been a while, but what was the original plan when you got here? Yeah, let's go in, in, in reverse order there. So I'd been in the Air Force. I didn't know much about business. Got some training at, at Sloan. I didn't know exactly, frankly, I didn't know exactly what I, what I wanted to do. But I said, you know, let's, this consulting stuff, I'm not even sure what that is. But maybe, you know, for two or three years, I'll understand a bit of it more about the commercial world that I haven't had exposure to. And then I'll find something else to do. But I can't imagine joining consulting and having that be, uh, you know, a couple decade career. Obviously, life's played out in a different way. One of the most important things that's really kept me here is that Bain is, you know, it allows you to continue and accelerate the lifelong learning journey that we're on. And that that applies within what we expect from a first-year consultant versus second-year consultant versus a manager, senior manager, or now associate partner, a partner, or even as a senior partner, or even a a more senior senior partner. And then the types of roles we can talk about, whether it's in line management or, or governance. And the feedback, the opportunity to stretch ourselves and the feedback that we get, you know, is one of the key things that has kept me here. But also through that, the opportunity to repot myself. And, you know, as you mentioned, geographically, my wife and I and our family moved around a couple of different times. And it's, it's been one of the, again, one of the special things about working in Bain. And fortunately with consulting, you know, we're, 
applied microeconomics and applied psychology. It's not like you need a license like a lawyer or a doctor. There is an opportunity to move from city to city or for, from country to country. My wife's Australian. She's a keen traveler. After a couple of years in London and after first son had been born, she was ready for an adventure. I'd met some folks who were starting up the office in, in Southeast Asia and Singapore at the time. Charlie Ormiston invited me to come out. We went out on an experiment, you know, what we call a case-based transfer or experience-based transfer at the time. Lucy and I and Harry were out for about four months. We enjoyed it. We saw this was a high-growth market. This was the middle of the 1990s. There were plenty of growth opportunities, both for the company and for me individually. And so we decided to transfer there full-time. So we made a permanent transfer. We ended up being there for about five years. Again, in that period of time, in the, the second half of the 1990s, that was one of our few offices in Asia. So I had an opportunity to work with local companies and multinational companies, whether it's Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines. I did quite a bit of work with Australia and China at the time. And again, that continued to open my eyes into there's some basics of microeconomics and how you're successful, but actually how the business environment, the union environment, the equity versus the debt markets are structured across these different markets, how government regulation is shaped and how it's influenced and how it is applied varies across these different markets, which is, again, I think an important part of learning and, and growing. Now, was that the only home base that you had in Singapore or did you repot yourself in Asia so as well? We were based in Singapore. We had two more children there and then they were still young and Lucy was still up for the adventure. And I mentioned my wife a couple times. I think there's a lot of choices we make in life. Probably the most important one we make is the partner that if we decide we want a partner that we're going to shape the rest of our lives with. And Lucy being open, not just open, but actually being the driver of a couple of our moves was an important part of that. So we moved up to Tokyo. We lived in Tokyo for about three and a half years. I continued to work at that point primarily in, in telecommunications. And a lot was taking place in the industry at the time. And then our children were getting a little bit older. We decided we needed to figure out where we were going to land and where we wanted them to, to go to secondary school and university. We thought about potentially going to Australia and join the practice there. I had experience there. We actively thought about coming to one of our U.S. offices, and then ultimately decided for a variety of reasons that we'd, uh, we'd come back to London. So we've been back here for a period of time since then. And that, again, in the rearview mirror, I'm not sure I planned it so much ahead of time, but in the rearview mirror, that repotting geographically as well, I think, was a, not just an important part of, of my growth and our growth as a couple and as a family, but also one of the things that's, that's kept me at bay, that, that continued opportunity to grow. Now, Mike, I know when you joined, you joined a firm that was hyper-generalist, like the same firm I joined in the mid-90s. How did you settle on transformations as being one of the areas that you would focus on? I've done a few during my career, but they tend to be really exciting projects, really diverse projects. Can you talk a little bit about those for people who may not be familiar with what a transformation is and what it means from a career perspective? Sure. So again, I, I wish I could tell you, Keith, this is kind of the common theme that had a grand plan as opposed to kind of I stumbled into things and then learned things as I ran, ran along the way. You know, as you say, when the management consulting at that time was very much driven by a generalist or a general manager perspective, we weren't specialists in telecommunications or in financial services and within financial services in banking or in corporate banking within that. The industry was still relatively young. But even within that, over time, I've mostly worked in network-based businesses, whether they were electrical or gas utilities or telecommunications-related companies. But I was extraordinarily fortunate in terms of the apprenticeship situation that I was in. My first two projects in London were working with partners 
that were working with client chief executives that were going one in the utilities and the other in, in telecommunications. They were going through radical technological change and regulatory change. And as a result, that required significant transformations, which started with a view of a strategic view of kind of where were the priorities for the business. In each of those cases required some changes in the organizational structure, what we now provide by our organization practice. There was some significant work in terms of improving the productivity and as a result, reducing the cost structure of the business. If you just took cost out of your field force or your call centers without improving the quality of customer service, then you were going to lose customers as opposed to gaining them. So you had to bring a mindset of who are our customers and what do they value and what type of experience are they willing to pay for and how can we make sure our experience is even better than our competitors. They were having a clear view of how was the industry evolving and were there other players in the industry that would help our strategic position, which led to some diligence and then acquisition and ultimately integration of some companies. And again, I'd like to say that was all planned in advance, but there I was working on one individual work stream, but seeing how the partners at the time were architecting and choreographing that integrated support to the clients. And then that's all I saw. So I just assumed that's, that's, how you that's do what it. Bain does. Yeah, that's how you do it. You know, I, I think back early in my career, I had the opportunity to work on a client for 18 months and then work on another client for 24 months right after that. Pulling the thread on that client for two years and just sort of going from strategy to integration to ops improvement to org to more strategy to more acquisitions, it was fascinating. And you get such richness of experience. The diversity I was getting was in the type of work I was doing. But the relationships I had with that leadership team at the end of two years were phenomenal. And I think people overlook that a lot. And it sounds like that's been a part of your journey as well. No, absolutely. And I think that's a great point, Keith. Kind of, if you step back and say, look, in two years at Bain, McKinsey, or BCG, am I, for any other consulting company, do I want to do 10 different strategy or pricing cases in 10 different companies? Or, as you said, within one or two companies, do I want to do strategy, operational improvement, cost reduction? customer experience. And I think that combination with of capabilities within a client experience truly helps with the general manager mindset. And if you decide you want to stay within consulting, it gives you that integrated view that helps you be an advisor for increasingly senior executives. I think equally importantly, if you view Bain as a springboard, it gives you that general manager mindset that you can bring to, if you're going to go work for a corporate client, if you want to go do a startup, if you're going to work for a private equity company on the portfolio team or the diligence side, it brings that broader perspective of what does it take strategically to win in a market? What does it take operationally to deliver? How do you need to organizationally align and incent people to drive behaviors, which then helps you, whether it's within Bain or out of Bain in terms of opportunities. I think the other thing is, again, not so much realizing at the time, is I mentioned apprenticeship, but I, I had the benefit the first year was working with a partner, Crawford Gillies. The second year was working with a partner, Stan Miranda, and a very recently promoted partner called Manny Maceda, who had come across to help us in, in a telecoms client. A year later, when I was in Singapore, I was working with Manny again. And again, you know, I had great apprenticeship. So again, by osmosis, I discovered, well, that's what a partner needs to do. They need to find the right clients. They need to help architect and choreograph transformations and they need to invest and develop in, in the next generation because they very quickly discover that the more successful their teams are, the more successful they can be. And that, again, by apprenticeship, I learned apprenticeship. 
Speaking of apprenticeship, you took on a pretty important role, I think, in 2015 in the UK and Ireland as the managing partner for the office out there. How did that role come about and how did you decide it was time to take on a servant leadership role inside such a big office, an important office for Bain? Thanks for asking about that. You know, it's one of these things that even after being in Bain for 5, 10, 15 years and definitely something that our, that our clients sometimes don't realize is that Yes, our core business is advising our clients and help our clients be successful. Right. But actually, we have a business that's actually doing that. And to run a successful business for our shareholders, ultimately for our partners, to create great outcomes for our clients, to create great outcomes for our people, to develop and inspire and apprentice and retain the next generation, to do that and deliver revenue growth and earnings growth, that requires a set of leadership skills that actually we were helping our clients develop. So as you said, we have a concept within Bain and whether it's in our line roles, so our worldwide managing partner, our regional managing partners, our office heads, or our industry practice or capability leaders. Or our um, recruiting leaders. <laughs> yeah, or, and importantly, our critical recruiting leaders and our, and our professional support team is there are critical leadership roles. And those leadership roles, as you said, Keith, they're very much viewed as servant leadership. So, and then similarly, there are opportunities on, in our governance roles. If you'd asked me previous to that, five years before, 10 years ago, where they had any interest in being office at, I said, no, our core business is serve, serving clients. I want to I want to spend my time on the front line. But as you become more senior, you recognize, you know, number one, actually, helping our partners and the next generation be successful in those environments is a real leadership opportunity. And second, you know, it's your time. And it is a rotational servant leadership role as opposed to, to permanent roles. And I was asked and I had the opportunity to serve and was probably, well, I think unambiguously the most rewarding five years of my time at Bain. Now, I remember during one of my trips to London, I had a chance to uh, to visit the office, as I always do when I come through Europe. There were a bunch of things that stood out to me. One, afterwards, you all had like an animal roasting out on the balcony and there was a very social aspect to it at the end. It was the end of the week, to be fair. But I also sat in on, I think you call them the town halls or, or an office meeting is what we call them in Chicago, but it was at the town square and you were sort of center stage and it was almost like a movie set. You had people sitting, you had people standing, you had one or two balconies going, you had sort of everybody's attention and the energy and the vibe in the office was just, it felt like a family meeting in some ways. And I think that speaks to a little bit of the apprenticeship approach that we were all in this together, whatever we were doing. And that vibe felt very strong to me as somebody who's visited easily more than half of our 60-plus offices at this point. Was that a deliberate focus of yours during your time as office head? And, and how are some of the things, what are some of the things that you did to cultivate that culture and community in the office? Because it, it really stood out to me. And I, it was one of the reasons I kept coming back to London every time I was in Europe. Well, it was always great to see you, Keith. And I appreciate you recognizing at the time and, and, and calling it out. I think the way I approached that managing partner role in London goes back to where we started the interview. It goes back to what formed me early on in my life before university. It was shaped by traveling and working in different parts of the world and trying to understand and, and appreciate other cultures and individuals. It was shaped by my time as an officer in the military and as an officer, regardless of, of your particular skill set, you know, you're a leader responsible for accomplishing a mission through and by enabling others. And kind of the classic mantra is mission men and me and kind of you come last. So it's it's ultimately the, the servant leadership mindset. And then, frankly, in, in my experience in, in transformations that we, we spoke about earlier and 
with my fellow partners, we developed a clear view of strategically what we want to do in the office, and that was an inflection and in growth. Mm-hmm. Understanding what drives our business, which is our people, it was then trend- recognizing that in order to do that, we needed to create a whole other level of, of energy and ambition in our team. If we were going to inflect our growth rate, we needed to accelerate the growth of our individuals. So someone from a trains from a consultant into a senior manager in a shorter period of time and a senior manager to a partner and a partner to a senior manager. Because in an apprenticeship-driven business, although we do bring people in, senior outside hires and experienced hires, an important part of the growth rate is the development of, of the folks that you're recruiting and developing. And then a recognition that if we wanted to create an environment where people felt they were, they were learning and they were inspired and they wanted to, to build their future at, uh, at Bain, we had to invest in the culture. So we did a whole set of things that the town meetings were part of that. And, you know, no surprise, you'll remember, we started that by celebrating our client work and the impact we were having with our clients. We had another chapter, so to speak, of each of those town hall meetings, which was celebrating the work of individuals. So it could be promotions. We always had a set of cultural awards. We call them the London legends. We also made sure that we called out not just the client-facing side of our business, but increasingly the set of experts, whether it's in advanced analytics or digital marketing in Ford or IND today, and our teams in finance, our teams in recruiting, our teams in, in PD, that we needed to recognize and celebrate that, again, we were working together as a team to be successful. And of course, we had to have a bit of fun. And although I kind of was a ringmaster and hosted, we tried to make sure that we created opportunities for the next generation, often for associate consultants or consultants to talk about the work that they were doing with a client. It was just really awesome. And I I just, I look back at those times, I I got a chance to be in more than one of those meetings and the energy was just always super high. And you just always had a sense that something special was happening there. Mike, I want to transition to what you're up to now. Fast forward a little bit, you're no longer an office head, but you're still taking on leadership roles inside the firm, servant leadership roles. Let's talk a little bit about one that you're currently active in working with Proxima. Can you talk a little bit about what Proxima is and and what work you're doing and what role you're playing with Proxima? Sure, Keith. So as we we talked about earlier, kind of the firm has evolved from, and the industry has evolved from one that was more generalist to bringing an increasing amount of expertise, but with an integrated results mindset. Over the last 10 years, we've been in a, on a journey within, within Bain & Company in terms of building deeper and deeper expertise, whether that's in, in individual industries or in capabilities. We've asked people to increasingly affiliate to their industries. We've hired external experts. We now have expert managers, expert uh, associate partners, and expert partners who have deep experience, whether that's in procurement or whether it's in supply chain or whether it's in in digital marketing. And in addition, we have built an ecosystem of partners that we work with. And then we've made some selective choices strategically to invest in acquiring capabilities in some areas. One of those areas we decided to invest in was in the broader space of supply chain and procurement. And Procurement Proxima is a UK-based consulting firm that focuses on supply chain and procurement. Most of the business was in the UK, but they also had an initial footprint in the US. For Bain & Company, this was critical because as we were going through a transition, if not a paused globalization, a little bit of the unwinding of globalization, and companies were rethinking their sourcing strategies, moving more nearshoring, and the need to restructure their supply chains. 
combined with the increasing recognition of the need to be more thoughtful of the impact on our environment and whether that's climate change and the carbon footprint, not of your own operations, scope one and scope two, but of scope three of your supply chain and your distribution chain. So they need to think of what's the carbon footprint of your suppliers. And increasingly, as we're helping our clients think through how do you move from a linear business model to a circular business model where you're acquiring raw materials and inputs from renewable sources and through the life cycle, you're bringing recycling back. All of those things at the core of it required a better understanding and an ability to support our clients, not just in designing and planning, but in driving through implementation on supply chain and procurement issues. So we acquired Proxima to build on our internal capabilities and then to double down and further invest in their growth so we could help our clients on these key areas. I was asked to take on the chairman role to support the integration, to work with the Proxima team and our procurement and our broader performance improvement practice to develop our value creation plan. Again, bringing some of the secret sauce that we bring to our clients, to our own internal business. And then that's led to investments in organic growth, particularly expanding what we're doing in the U.S. and we're broader in, in North America. We're really excited by our new Proxima colleagues. And I think it's just a, an indication of, you know, our further, our ongoing commitment to building deeper and deeper expertise in the service of, of our clients' needs. It's really awesome. And the last thing I wanted to ask you about was you're also a leader in some of the social impact work that we're doing at Bain. I know it was important to you when you were leading the business as an office head in the UK. Talk a little bit about what you're doing in the social impact space as well, because I know that's where you're spending a decent amount of your time too. So in each of our offices and globally, we have a set of of partnerships and and local partners where we work with charities, social enterprises, non-governmental organizations, bringing, again, that transformative approach, that integrated general manager approach to help each of these organizations be more successful. And there's an opportunity in in every office, whether you're an associate consultant or a partner, to be involved in, in that social impact work. It's mostly pro bono. Sometimes it's low bono. Sometimes it's a full case team that's allocated to that. Sometimes it's, as you know, it's what we call an extra 10%. I first got involved with with one of our partnerships with the Social Business Trust. I worked on a couple of growth strategies for social enterprises and got really excited by one that I worked with, which is the London Early Years Foundation. We have a network of nurseries now. It's 42 in in London. So nurseries and preschools that are primarily in, in disadvantaged areas. That's very similar to Head Start in the United States. I first did the growth strategy over time, stayed close to LEAF, the London Early Years Foundation. Over time, was was encouraged to apply to join the board and then take the chair role. So I've been very fortunate and privileged and have got a lot of energy from working with that team as we more than doubled the, the business and the number of children that we're serving. You know, and I think if I just take back from that and kind of the, where we started, the different chapters of your life, If you'd asked me when I was 18 years old, before I went to university at 22, if I thought 30 to 40 years from now, I'd be the chair of a social enterprise in London, working in in nurseries and preschools. First of all, I wouldn't have guessed it. Number two, I'd have no idea how I'd get there from here. But kind of if you step back each of those steps along the way. So one of the things that I think is really exciting about the consulting career is that the set of experience that we develop to work with corporate human organizations or private equity organizations, strategy, operations, operating model, customer segmentation, carve-outs, diligence, integrations, with some modifications 
and married to a social purpose, but that set of skills and capabilities can be applied to and support social enterprises, governmental organizations, obviously clearly with some variations and and because the uh, the missions are different, there's not always an, an an economic measure as an outcome. But to me, it's been one of the the thing that's been most exciting over over the last couple of years is recognizing that the skill sets I built in the previous chapters can be applied outside of the the corporate world. And as I think of the next decade or hopefully the next couple of decades of, of my life, my personal and professional life, that I built a set of skills and capabilities that it can allow me to continue to uh, to give back, to uh, to appreciate the blessings that I've had and try to contribute opportunities for others. Mike, that's really awesome to hear. And I hope that people listening take that to heart because it's it's good to have a rough plan in mind, but life rarely takes that linear path. I know, I remember what I wrote on my business school essays of what I'd be doing right now, and it really does not resemble that at all. And when I joined Bain, like so many people, my goal was to work for a couple of years and get Bain to pay for business school and then be a free agent. And that was 27 years ago, and I'm still here because I keep getting great opportunities. I keep feeling challenged and I, I get to work with amazing people every day. And that sounds like a consistent theme for you and for all of the guests we've had on the podcast. I want to thank you for coming on today. We were long overdue to catch up and it's probably been too long to get you on the podcast, but thanks for taking the time today. And it's great to hear your journey and your story. Thanks, Keith. It's great to be with you. Best wishes and look forward to seeing you again soon.